MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. have you found yourself saying, I had no idea? Well, that leads me to my guest for this week's Spy Talk podcast, John Haddon. It was only recently that I learned of Haddon's extraordinary 2016 memoir, Conversations with the Masked Man, My Father, the CIA, and Me. The book debuted with rave advance notices, but generally flew under the radar when it was published seven years ago. So I was eager to read the book, the beating heart of which is verbatim transcripts of Haddon's intimate, oftentimes unsettling dialogue with his father, a career CIA Cold War operative in the sunset of his life. Haddon Sr., who died in 2013, operated against the Soviets in post-war Berlin and Central Europe and in the 1960s became the agency's chief of station in Tel Aviv. As such, he was tasked with getting to the bottom of Israel's clandestine nuclear bomb program, which put him in the crosshairs of Mossad, as well as some U.S. officials who wanted evidence of a U.S. connection to Israel's secret program to remain secret. Today, John Haddon, who shares his father's name, is an actor, director, playwright, and teacher based in Vermont, His productions have often included works by Shakespeare, especially those featuring torturous relationships between fathers and sons. His solo show, Travels with a Masked Man, is based on his memoir. John Haddon, welcome to Spy Talk. There's so many things I want to talk about with you today. The first, of course, is the question of growing up in a CIA family where there are so many secrets and everyone's playing a role The other is your father's very interesting career as a case officer in what's now called the National Clandestine Service, which is to say he recruited and managed foreigners willing to spy or do other things for the United States in secret. Another is your father's very interesting remarks about his tour as chief of station in Israel. Another is his views on James Jesus Angleton, the notoriously paranoid head of counterintelligence who began suspecting virtually everyone around him, including your dad, as a Soviet-Russian mole. He had very candid and raw feelings that he took away about the CIA and intelligence work in general, which he had very contradictory feelings about. At points in your fascinating dialogue with him, he thought maybe intelligence was a waste of time, and, and yet he was very patriotic. So my first question is, how did you get him to unburden himself about his career, including some very sensitive issues? Well, it was all of a sudden, one afternoon, uh, a whim flitted across my mind 
and I said, hey, would you be willing to have me interview you on tape for a book? And almost immediately he said, yes. Mm. And I just didn't expect that at all. But then I was caught and I was in. And then when we got going, he gave me 18 to 20 hours of uninterrupted spill about his life and his career. And yeah, the uh, doubts that you mentioned. Just fascinating. He's, you seem to have inherited, you, you write in your book, kind of a habit of, of lying to people early in your life. Do you think that was because of his own official lying about his life? I mean, he had to play the role of a diplomat when he was really a spy. What do you think? Um, I've thought about that a lot. I don't, I haven't come to any absolute conclusion. Partly it was part of, it was our, it was part of our relationship. I was in such trouble all the time that uh, I would do anything to avoid the repercussions of having done something wrong. So I always tried to wiggle out of it. Hmm. I've, I've gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like the things you recount in your book are normal, you know, preteen lying and squirming out of things and, and uh, dissembling before your parents. It doesn't, nothing too serious. It's a big issue for me. The whole question of truth and deceit. I don't know why, but it's, it's a, it's a big issue for me. I, I, um, well, you grew up in a family and in an environment of, of deceit. I mean, that was your father's um, role to play uh, as something other than what he was. Let me ask you this. Did you, did there, did there come a time when you had the so-called, what I call the birds and bees sit down moment with your parents where uh, they said, uh, you know, your dad is, is not a diplomat as he pretends to be. He's actually a CIA officer. He, he's in the spying business. Was there a sit down? No. An old colleague of his who happened to be teaching at the prep school where they had sent me had married recently and his wife didn't understand that these things were not to be talked about. And so the two of us were standing at some function very awkwardly with nothing to say. And she just kind of blurted out, hey, isn't it interesting that your, your father and Jimmy were in the CIA together all those years ago? And that was hmm. the kind of the supersaturated solution moment. And that, and that I, it all made sense suddenly. Before that, I had no idea. That was right after the Kent State shootings. So it was an interesting moment for us late teenagers. 1970, yeah. So your dad thought it best to conceal from you his clandestine activities, his double life, as it were. Did he ever uh, engage you, looking back, uh, use you for cover for some of that activities? I, I talked to uh, uh, someone else who grew up in a CIA family who uh, told me how his dad used to take him on walks in the park, which looked like a very innocent thing to do. And yet his father was servicing a dead drop under a tree. Did your dad engage you in CIA activities? Oh, I think um, that's common, that the family uh, provides cover for all kinds of things at parties, functions. You know, the, the reason that we had a, a membership at the Sharon Hotel pool where we could all play and get out and stay out of trouble, that, ha that turned out to be a good place for him to meet people without being followed, that kind of thing. I, I do remember... Um, <laughs> A picnic. This is maybe jumping ahead a little. He packed us all into his Ford Falcon in Israel and said, we're going on a picnic. So we 
drove a few hours out to the Negev, out to the desert, uh, right up to the nuclear reactor at Dimona, whereupon he handed out peanut butter sandwiches like playing cards, and then got a pair of garden shears out of the trunk. Now, this is why I remember this, is because he had no interest in gardens, whatever. So that was unusual. And then he went and plucked desert shrubbery and threw it all in the trunk, packed us all back in, turned around, and we went home. And that was the picnic. It, it was hmm. later I, I found out from Roger Madsen, the nuclear safety engineer, that uh, radiation has a very distinct isotopic fingerprint, as it were. And he was comparing the mm-hmm. uh, the isotopic print on those shrubs with the ones surrounding the plant at Apollo, Pennsylvania, Numec, and they matched. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most one of the most fascinating episodes in your book. Actually, your dad's job in Israel was to find out what Israel was doing in terms of building a bomb, how far along they were. Um, and that's why he was out in the desert pulling up shrubs uh, to measure the uh, radioactivity in them. And during this time in Israel, it's also another interesting part. Uh, it was also to identify the exact, uh, the source of that um, highly refined uranium so that he mm-hmm. knew that it was the same, the same stuff refined at that particular refinery. Yeah. And and the Israelis, although we, you know, we, we think of the Israelis as very close allies, the Israelis are actually, uh, as, as your dad recounts in the book, uh, they were uh, intent on keeping uh, the extent of their nuclear bomb program, keeping it from the Americans. Yeah. Now, I should say now that I, I myself was completely oblivious to all of this. Sure. And in fact, I only know what he told me. So I'm not exactly, you know, your platonic firsthand source. He goes on to talk about being followed everywhere by Mossad agents, uh, that's Israeli intelligence agents, and that they bugged your house and so on. Yeah, which which he uh, found amusing and welcome. He welcomed it, actually. He, he, he didn't try too hard to conceal who he was. And he claimed that that way, uh, everybody knew who to talk to if they had something to say. Meanwhile, he was busy talking to all kinds of people that had nothing to do with what he was looking for, which was both enjoyable for him, but it also threw everybody off that was trying to follow him because they couldn't possibly keep up with, you know, this opera singer and that archaeologist, and this uh, bocce scholar. You know? <laughs> he described intelligence work is basically just talking to people. He seemed to have a lot of disdain for a lot of the covert activities involved in in the spying business. Uh, He kind of uh, shrugged or dismissed it and said, the best thing an intelligence officer can do is just find out what's going on by talking to people, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, it wasn't, it was more than a shrug. He was, I think he, um, he had a really hard time with the way that the CIA went into operations and assassinations and a hand over fist was losing trust amongst other nations, hmm. which was without trust, you couldn't get anybody to talk. So he thought if you don't have a high moral ground to stand on, you, 
there's no way anybody's going to trust you mm. or have the the uh, incentive to you know to do so-called good yeah he he had a very dim view in particular of covert action overthrowing governments and so on uh let me quote from the book uh your interview with him he says it was with these cowboys who thought bombing and assassinations were the way to get things done for one thing Presidents used it as a Band-Aid. Diplomacy takes too long and they can't always go to war, so they need something in between, something that they can deny. He called covert action puerile shenanigans, which have caused us, quote, nothing but grief and harm. They have nothing to do with espionage. They damage our intelligence in more ways than one. Did those remarks surprise you? Did you have a different view of CIA at that point? or your father's work, did that, I found that quite jarring. Was it jarring to you when you heard him say that? I was surprised at the the vehemence of his feeling about it, but I wasn't surprised by his point of view. Why not? Uh, I guess, you know, I'd known him all my life. And uh, when I discovered at the age of 17, that he was a CIA agent, for instance, it it didn't feel to me like, oh my God, I've got this evil father. In fact, I was relieved to find out that he was not a diplomat because by then I had somehow gotten a a, a sour view of diplomats Hmm. overseas. I always loved being in other countries, but I was always a little embarrassed to be American. It just seemed to be a, a Potemkin village aspect to the way uh, diplomats abroad paraded their their wealth, which was which was not real. They would we would we would come back to this country and live in little ranch houses and under you know low paying civil service salaries. But overseas, uh, diplomats are are sort of made into flower bouquets so that everybody's overly impressed with Americans, and then that kind of leaks into the way many diplomats, at least from my point of view as a 13-year-old, saw themselves as you know better than everybody else. And in fact, it, it, I thought I was better than everyone else because I was American. And then when I finally got to this country, of course, I, I saw that uh, it, was a, it was a whole different game than what I had expected. Hmm. You grew up in and around American embassies in several countries. And uh that was a much more innocent time in the 1960s. It was before all the revelations about assassinations and covert action came out during the so-called Frank Church hearings and so on. Did any of that surprise you when it came out? I mean, here you were growing up in a CIA family. Did that shock you when, as it did many Americans to learn about uh, all the covert action and assassinations and bombings and so no, on? No, I... I mean, I was, there were nuggets of information that I hadn't heard about, but overall, it didn't seem surprising to me at all. That's what I expect. I mean, we had been at it for quite a while, from recruiting Nazis right after the war to to spy on the Soviets, to the the overthrow of Mossadegh in, in, when I was born in 1953. And, And I was a, you know, and I was a rebellious young anti-war protest type that my father actually thought I was a uh, an asset 
working against him. I was on the KGB payroll. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, not for real. Yeah, he he thought I, you know, the S through SDS. You're being you're being sarcastic. No, 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 no. Through SDS, he thought I, I was uh, somehow supporting myself by. Uh, whether I, he, maybe I was an unsuspecting. SDS, let's just stop and tell people 50, 60 years ago now. Uh, SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, was a left wing, anti war, pro civil rights movement, very radical uh, in its time. Um, so you got involved with anti war activity uh, at a time when he was CIA station chief in, in Israel or around that time. Um, so that did that became a point of conflict between you two? I mean, to the point that he thought that maybe you were a Soviet asset. He had he had uh, he had tested this. <laughs> At one point in the interview, I said, um, "Oh, that I said, oh, that reminds me of that time when you thought I was working for the KGB." And he said, "Oh, yeah, yeah." And then we talked about how he sent me off to a kibbutz in Israel in 1969, to a friend of his who was uh, one of his favorite opposites, as he called them, a, a former KGB guy, originally from Brooklyn, who was on this kibbutz. And he, he set me up with this guy uh, as a kind of surrogate father, the way those the volunteer uh, adult relationships work on kibbutzim. And he, and he was testing me to see uh, if I was spouting stuff and that he could put his ear to the ground and find out if if I was well of course I was I was I was a big blabbermouth I would say anything that came to my mind um especially if it was kind of illicit and exciting so it it, it convinced him that I that I was a a, a security leak and um probably a a threat to his career hmm yet yeah, you didn't know much about his CIA work at that time. How old were you then? In the kibbutz, I was just 16, just turned 16. So, I mean, at 16, you weren't aware of his, uh, you might have been dimly suspe suspicious of his uh, work, but you you did not know he was a CIA officer. Uh, and so you weren't much of a security risk. I guess he thought maybe because you had left-wing views, you were a threat to the the country. He really saw you as a threat to his own career. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think he didn't feel all that threatened in general. There were times when he broke the rules himself and didn't seem too concerned about the extent to which that put his career in jeopardy. But um, there, but there were things I knew. I mean, I knew his whereabouts. I, I, there were all kinds of things that I knew that I didn't tie together with. The fact that he was station chief. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a sec. The funny thing is that I think he had tried to clue me in, and I was just too naive and too trusting to uh, to, to pick up on it. Hmm. Now, for instance, once I went to it to his office in the embassy to do my homework, and uh, it was way up on the top floor, and I'd never been to his office, and I, I thought, oh well, this is because he's he has a low ranking he's a low ranking second political secretary so they must have stuck him as far away from the lobby as possible <laughs> you know, and given the the higher ranking people 
more nearby offices. Well, except that he his office was half of the whole top floor, where all the surveillance equipment was, of course, on the roof in the, in the Tel Aviv embassy. And guarded by Marines. And it was the only floor that had these Marine guards with rifles and puttees standing on either side stone-faced. Hmm. And then when he when he went, he said, oh, I'm going down in the, the hall. And the only other person up there was the ambassador. And he said, oh, so just while I'm gone, just don't look in that file. And he pointed at the open file and left. And I went over, of course, to look at it because I was curious. Sure. And it was a big fat file that was marked Kim Philby. No. Who had not yet been caught as the uh, as running the the Cambridge Five. So Philby, of course, the the notorious and legendary agent. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I I did look it up later and found out, oh, yeah, he's this uh, double agent, big time double agent. But it still didn't occur to me. Well, so what? Of course, he could have a file on that. But there were other things, too, like uh, Dick Richard Helms came to visit us in Israel shortly after he'd been appointed as the di- director of CIA. And he was on the cover of Time magazine, which I recognized. But it never, I just thought, oh, okay. So the director of CIA came to see us in Israel. So what? <laughs> hmm. But my friend at the time went to his father and said, you know what, is is Johnny's dad a CIA guy? And he was 11 or 12. And the guy said, oh, yeah, he is, but don't tell Johnny. And so he never did, but he could have. And so there was all this, there was all this, these little clues all over the place, but I just, it never occurred to me to put them together until later, of course. Well, must have been a very confusing time. I mean, it's a very difficult time anyway, 11, 12, 13 years old. Uh, He was, seemed, (laughs) that whole incident with the Kim Philby file. Of course, I just have to quickly tell people who don't know, Kim Philby was a notorious or a legendary, whatever way you look at it, Soviet mole at the top of British intelligence, uh, uh, who sent many people to their to their deaths uh, because of his perfidy. Um, and he left a file on Philby open for you to see. I guess that maybe looking back, was that a way of him trying to kind of hint to you that that he was not just a regular diplomat, that, that he was in the spying business? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it was partly, I think, he wanted me to know that I was bigger than his assignment said he was, as a matter of pride. But I also think um, he he wanted me to know, but he didn't, but it was impossible for me him to tell me. Hmm. On the other hand, later on, he told me that uh, it was important for kids not to know anything because... If they're taken and interrogated, interrogators can tell right away if they don't know anything. But if they do, uh, then it can go badly. Hmm. And, and how much later was that that he told you this? Is this when you're both, but he's elderly, uh, near the twilight of his life, and you're a full adult? Years later, yeah. And, and, and what do you think about that now? I, I, I knew that he was CIA from... 17 onwards. So it was always in the background of our of our conversations. And uh, our conversations in any case had always been about politics around the dinner table. It was it was a kind of vicarious way for us to disagree about 
other more personal things. So we would we would get very heated about current events, and I assumed that he was a uh, he, that he towed the line in every way. Uh, so I assumed that he was in favor of the war in Vietnam and so on. Later, he told me that no, he thought it was a terrible uh, debacle. But but that and that surprised me because he silenced his own his own views to his family even. He he hated uh, whistleblowers. He thought they were grandstanding. And yet he 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 said that one day when Abu Ghraib was in the news, he thought he might go down and stand on a box and put himself in a in a hood and have some wires coming out, you know, as as protest. And that surprised me because. Hmm. And so I would ask him, so listen, why don't you join other dissident ex? CIA officials and add your name to uh, all these things that you think are screwing us. And no, he had some kind of inner compass that didn't allow that. Yeah. He talked about being a good soldier. Yeah. He was a, he was a West Point educated soldier. And yet he said, he says to you in the book, in your interview with him, it was not a health, healthy life. Uh, he drank a lot. And he and he indicated that was pretty common, yeah, uh, in the clandestine service, yeah. So he was a good soldier who who wrecked his own life. Well, a part of it. I mean, on the other hand, he enjoyed it quite a lot. He loved being overseas, away from his American chiefs, that, as you said, he thought of as cowboys. He he, he was he had a a dim view of uh, warmongers who had never been to war themselves. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but he loved, he loved talking to, uh, to foreigners. That was just, that was one of his great pleasures in life. And so he had that mm-hmm. in spades. Yeah. It's too bad he didn't pursue a career as a journalist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is too bad. Uh, and he did have his small rebellions. Uh, he talked about disobeying orders that he thought were stupid, yep. and, and sometimes they had great consequence. For example, in the middle of the Six-Day War in Israel in 1967, he got an order from headquarters to tell the Israelis it was okay for them to go ahead and bomb Cairo. There was no reference in the cable or the orders to the president, LBJ, approving such a drastic escalation. It was just one man's idea, Des Fitzgerald, head of, head of operations. And he thought it was so stupid, he just ignored it. That's right. He said, I took one look at that and I just dropped it in the shredder. And it turned out later on that the DCI, uh, CIA director, Richard Helms, called him, followed up and asked him, what did you do about that order? And he said, well, I just haven't been able to carry it out yet. Yeah. And Helms was appreciative of that. But boy, what a loose cannon uh, Des Fitzgerald was, exactly. the head of operations. And he had equal disdain for Bobby Kennedy trying to kill Castro. Yeah. 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 No, I have a very confused uh, impression of Bobby Kennedy from what my father said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I first learned some 30, more than 30 years ago from a former CIA officer who told me that Bobby Kennedy was in charge of everything regarding getting rid of Castro, I didn't believe it. I did, it, it didn't. Mm-hmm. It just didn't comport with my understanding of Bobby Kennedy and, and the bureaucracy in general that, you know, the attorney general wouldn't have been involved in 
trying to kill Castro. He would keep his hands off. And yet it turned out to be true. And that's that was the subject of your father's disdain. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's it's possible to connect the dots with the Kennedy's mob associations and uh, the problems with, with uh, Cuba. Mm. That uh, Robbie, Bobby Kennedy uh, was trying to, you know, get them back. What's your what's your takeaway from all this? Clearly, you had great admiration for your father, um, and you, of course, like any child, you wanted to please him. But what would you say to other families? It's not likely that a twelve or thirteen year old is going to be listening to this podcast. It's possible, but what would you say to other young uh, families with young children, CIA families? What, what what should be the takeaway? What what should they do or not do? What, how how should they deal with their children? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I can think of my own brothers and sister um, who very wisely just laid low to avoid uh, being the target of his temper. So I think that's a that's a good policy. <laughs> Looking back on your experience with your dad, who never did have that birds and bees conversation with you, do you think he, he should have sat down with you at age 12 or 13 and, and say, look, um, this is what we do. This is my real life, and, I, and, and, I, and it's important that we keep this inside the family. Do you think he should have done that? Would that have been better for you? And would you advise young CIA families today to do that with their children? No. No, uh, I think it's much better to be kept in the dark. It's confusing enough for the person who's actually doing it. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking of the the the, the series, The Americans, mm -hmm. two KGB agents who come over and establish themselves as a as a red blooded American family running a travel agency. Yeah, and they have kids, and when the kids begin to find out, it's very difficult for them to to know what, where their loyalties lie, what their identities are, who their parents are, and all of that. It's just way too confusing. Better to keep them in, your dark, in the dark, you're saying. Yeah, and I think his argument uh, that uh, if you know it makes you vulnerable, I think that's a legitimate argument also. Vulnerable to U.S. adversaries. Yeah. Uh, I feel a little vulnerable now talking about uh, the Israeli bomb, for instance. And I was just reading a novel by, the, uh, by John Banville, a, a Booker Award writer who's very good. And his latest novel uh, has a plot point that surrounds the question of Mossad possibly knocking people off who are talking too much about the bomb. And what do you draw from that? Uh, I don't quite know. Um, we were we were talking about the the Oppenheimer film, and you just the other day, yeah, interviewed mm -hmm. Kai Bird, mm -hmm. and so I went to see it last night, and uh, I was very disturbed and very moved by it. I guess I'd grown up having nightmares about nuclear holocaust, having hmm. lived in various hot spots where that could happen, and um, hmm. and my grandfather was part of the Manhattan Project in a big way. Mm -hmm. And died of a, of a heart attack at 64, I think my father claimed from anxiety about that. Hmm. And uh, anything that I, I'm a, I'm a theater director and I write stuff and anything I do has 
to do with the the damage that uh, that happens when power gets out of hand and people crush each other, either on a personal level or on a national, global level. And uh, I remember reading the book uh, On the Beach by Neville Shute when I was about 11 or 12. And I can remember it clear as day, you know, just thinking, oh yeah, that's where we're going. That's about a global nuclear war. I remember that reading that myself in high school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a very convincing story. Startling. Yeah. So you would, uh, it, it sounds like what you're saying to wrap this up. It sounds like you're saying that beyond the actual real physical casualties of the Cold War. And your dad always thought that there wasn't any real Cold War. It was just a continuation of war in another form. Um, that, the, that the casualties include families uh, like your own, uh, children like yourself growing up in the shadow and a, a close proximity to the actual mechanics of the Cold War. Sounds like you were a casualty too. Yeah, nothing like the way children the world over are casualties of our so-called exceptionalism and our drive to have more and more, more than everybody else. You know, children scrambling around on toxic waste sites in, in the Congo to get minerals for iPhones, that kind of thing, just massive starvation everywhere and people living under rubble. It just, uh, I can't stand it. Mm. And I'm, and my father felt that way as well. He, he claimed to uh, really dislike the human race in general. And that was the kind of the theme of our argument all the way through that book was I was trying to convince him that there was something worth continuing this human experiment for. And he didn't think so. He said, I'm rooting for the cockroaches. And all the things that he would say to me growing up um, seemed to be prophetic. And it always irritated me. <laughs> like well, One of the things he kept saying was, oh, it can't happen here. Well, it can happen here. And he had smelled the, the rotten, drowned bodies in Dresden, and seen, you know, what it what was the outcome in Germany. And he just said, "This is Germany is not different than than this country here at all." Mm -hmm. That war could come here and devastate us. Oh yeah, that that internally we can do that to ourselves. But but the Middle East. He considered a, the, 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 like the tinderbox that he thought that's where it would all explode. Mm -hmm. And we keep pouring armaments and stuff in, in, into that little tiny part of the world. And uh, <laughs> Israelis themselves talk about the Samson option, which taken from the story in the Bible is uh, the, the metaphor for, well, we've got We've got missiles trained at all the major cities. So if anybody takes us out, you're all gone. And it just seems to me that as a human species, we're meant to do something else. We're meant to take care of each other. We're meant to experience love. We're, experience, we're meant to appreciate the miracle of life in all its um, unbelievable, unfathomable variety all around us. And it seems like we're just several hundreds of thousand years away from that before our brains can get what we're really here for. 
And meanwhile, we're just destroying ourselves. Like, you know, we're in our terrible twos and there's no nanny around, you know, tell us, no, no, put it down. Yeah. The bomb. Yes. Put it down. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. don't, don't kill your brother. No. So that, that, that drives me on some very uh, cellular level. It's interesting that in so many ways, you and your dad came together in your views over the years and at the end. Huh. I think by, by doing this crazy project with him, we, we found a connection that we'd been missing all our lives. And so <laughs> when, you, when you said something like that, it made me think, huh, maybe I won after all. You know, my uh, flower child self got got something done and made peace with him. I I urge everyone to read your book, Conversations with a Masked Man, My Father, the CIA, and Me. It's just fascinating on so many levels, and it's and it's revelatory in terms of Cold War uh, activities. So that. Uh, there's much to be learned from it about Cold War history, but the dynamic between you and your dad was absolutely fascinating. And um, for anyone interested in intelligence activities and CIA and growing up in a CIA family, I highly recommend your book. And I'm so grateful that you spent this time with me today, John. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to Check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out the Spy Talk news site on Substack, where our deeply experienced contributing writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analysis. Just Google Spy Talk and you'll find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast was smoothly produced and edited, per usual, by Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. And oh, by the way, that music you're hearing, that's every breath you take, of course. The Monster 83 hit by The Police, fronted by Sting. Interesting footnote, Sting says he started writing the song at the late Ian Fleming's secluded estate in Jamaica. And as many Spy Talk followers also probably know, the band's drummer was Stuart Copeland, whose father was the legendary CIA ops officer, Miles Copeland. Sting said the song had nothing to do with the CIA or espionage. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W-Media.